Hello, everyone. I'm C.B. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Oliver Reedy, the prize-winning translator of Vladimir Sharov's Before and During, which presents a highly imaginative, not to say fantastical, account of events leading up to and beyond the Russian Revolution of 1917 as seen through the prism of late Soviet life. The novel, published in Russian in 2009, is narrated in the first person by a man in early middle age whom we know only as Alyosha. It opens in Moscow in October 1965, when Alyosha, a troubled writer of children's books about Bolsheviks and of several biographies of revolutionary figures, is on his way to a consultation with a psychiatrist. I first set foot in this hospital in October 1965, the 18th, if I'm not mistaken. They weren't supposed to keep me in. The plan was for a certain Professor Kronfeld to see me privately and choose a set of pills to match my particular profile. From the metro, I followed a diagonal path, as instructed, across wasteland and unfenced building sites. The path was well used, and the previous night's snowfall so well trodden that here and there it had turned to ice. You couldn't imagine anyone living here. Foundation pits and uneven piles of concrete slabs immediately gave way to vegetable depots, garages, warehouses. The once navigable Yauza flowed nearby, railway line passed right through, and everything else had just clotted around. This shortcut should have been a 20 or 25-minute walk, but I'd been going for more than half an hour, and the street I needed was nowhere to be seen. The path was narrow, slippery, and of course I was walking more slowly than usual, but still it was high time for it to end. I wasn't prepared to walk like this forever, in fear of falling like a clown on stilts. I was tired and annoyed with myself for not taking the other route, the easier one. What was I doing trudging from one warehouse, one job site, to another, when I could have skirted them all along two broad streets that were swept and kept safe for walking? Convinced I was lost, I cursed myself mercilessly. I was almost in tears. The situation hardly warranted such a reaction, but I was on my way to a doctor, to a mental hospital. I didn't know what he'd say to me, what fate held in store. I was a bag of nerves. If only I hadn't cut it so fine. If only I'd given myself enough time to take the longer, more reliable route, not this uneven, uncertain path. But God exists. There I was, wandering blindly among the garages, doing my best to avoid the potholes and the mud, when suddenly the ground and the path along which I was walking and this whole half-built labyrinth, and even the snow, all gave off the scent of vanilla and fresh hot bread. Ahead, a stone's throw away, was the bakery I'd been told to look out for. Apparently it was on the same street as the hospital, three buildings before it. The scent of vanilla is the scent of my childhood. The scent that surrounded me when I was conceived, brought to term, brought to life— the scent of my mother, my grandmother, our house, of all that was good and kind in my life. I spent my first six years on Pravda Street, not far from Soviet Hotel, famous for its gypsies to this day, and right opposite the huge Bolshevik cake factory. That was where the smell came from, and I've always been convinced, for as long as I can remember, that the reason the factory bears its proud name is that this is what the Bolsheviks were like. Soft, rich, sweet. And now, please join me in welcoming Oliver Reedy. Hi, Oliver. Thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. Hello, and thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on. It's a privilege as a translator to be talking about the book. 
Um, I'm always fascinated by translations. I love talking to translators because uh, I once uh, translated an old Russian book. And so I'm aware of how much work goes into it. And especially, I think, for a literary work like this, it must be a um, great endeavor on your part. Um, as I always do, let's begin with you. Uh, in addition to Before Enduring and several other contemporary novels, you've also produced a new translation of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, I understand. Yes, and in fact, I was, I was working on them more or less simultaneously, although the Dostoevsky took me longer. It's a bigger book apart from anything else. But towards the, the last two years of, of working on Crime and Punishment, I was also doing this um, before and during, with great pleasure, I have to say. Um, so it was interesting to have these two very different um, authors side by side in my head every day. <laughs> it must have been interesting because they are very different projects. Um, so The Crime and Punishment appeared earlier this year and um, the Vladimir... They, they both came out at about the same time, in fact, yeah. mm -hmm. earlier this year, yeah. And it's Vladimir Sharov, right? Not Sharov. It's Sharov. 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 Okay. Sharov. The, the stress is on the second syllable. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm accustomed to this with Russian names. For some reason, they always seem to stress it someplace where my it's, sort of Scots-American background <laughs> puts a stress. <laughs> I, I, don't think that, I don't think it has to be Sharov, but, it, but it's just what it is for some reason. Yeah. I, okay. I, I often wondered before I met him as well. Um, so you recently uh, completed your doctorate at Oxford, for which I congratulate you. Tell us something about your history, including what drew you to Russian and especially to uh, your career as a translator of literary works. Yes, well, uh, well, I, I, was, I was lucky enough to have Russian as, as a language I could study at school. So I started when I was about 15, in fact. Um, but probably the most important thing was was the ability to uh, you know, the chances I had to visit Russia very often from the early 1990s onwards. And um, after school, I then decided to carry on with Russian at university. And part of part of the university course at Oxford was spending a year abroad. And in my case, I chose to go to a town called Saransk, which not everybody has heard of, but it's in Mordovia, the Republic. Uh, it's where Bakhtin, the, the um, philosopher, spent much of his later life. Um, and, and that used to be a closed town shortly uh, before I arrived there. So although there were 500,000 people living there, there were very few people who spoke English, um, either as a first language or as a second language. So, so it was a, a complete immersion. Um, and I think that was a big, uh, a big inspiration to carry on with, with Russian because within a year I, I really managed to learn to speak properly, to, you know, not, not just to have the theoretical understanding, but to, 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 to see Russian life close up and to hear colloquial speech, which if you're a translator is, is, is so important, um, although not necessarily in the case of Sharov, actually, because he doesn't use very much dialogue. But I think in general, for an understanding of how the contemporary language works, you, to, to have lived there um, for some time is, 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 is really important and something which my generation of translators and of Russianists have had, which, which was harder for, for earlier generations, of course, during the Cold War, although they, they did still visit. visit. Um, and then I came back from Saransk, I finished my degree, and then spent some a good year and a half or two years in Moscow, um, working in various newspapers, uh, including, including the Moscow News, the English edition of the Moscow News, um, where one of my jobs was to, to do translations every week of a short story. They had a, a, a page 
called not not very attractively linguist's corner where they would run um a classic usually a classic short story by Chekhov or somebody in both languages so my job was to one of my jobs was to translate the russian into the, into english which i did under the very strict supervision of sergei roy uh, a russian um and a fantastic translator with a very strong philosophy of how translation should be done and it was working with him i think that i learned a lot about about literary translation and managed to get over perhaps some of my bad habits that I had before then. Um, so I'm very indebted to him. He was an, completely bilingual, I mean, he is um, completely bilingual and can write equally well in Russian and English. And um, I think that level of bilingualism is very, very rare. And to have sort of that access to his expertise for quite a long period of time was, was, was marvelous for me. What was his theory of translation? Well, a theory, perhaps, is, I mean, he's a very practically minded uh, translator, and so he wouldn't want to call it a theory. But I, I think, the, not, not nowadays, perhaps, but in the past, there has been a, a tradition in English of um, translating from Russian, of perhaps padding out the Russian. I mean, in any case, when you translate from Russian into English, we use more words in English uh, because... Well, for example, we use the definite article um, and many other, just, just the syntax of the language is different and it means using more words in English. But I think sometimes that gives us a license to sort of add more words of our own to, to um, um, sometimes make sense, paraphrase the Russian. Um, and when you do start doing that, you lose the energy of the original. And uh, that was something that he uh, beat out of me in the nicest possible way, uh, a sort of real respect of the original and of not diluting it with um, unnecessary additions. That's, that's one aspect. I mean, another, another equally important um, way in which he helped me was simply his total knowledge of late Soviet, late Soviet reality um, and just being able to de- describe to me what um, the everyday reality that, that, that you know, I, I, I never experienced for myself from the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. So it was an encyclopedic education in that sense. It is a very lovely translation. It's really fluid. It's, I mean, if I were to just pick it up and not see the name on the cover, I wouldn't know that it had not originally been written in English. Thank you. Well, it would have to be quite a strange English author to, to write such a... <laughs> A wild, a wild Russian novel. That's true. The, the content would certainly give it away very soon. Yes, that's true. Um, how did you come to write to work on this particular novel then? So I, I actually finished my doctorate about seven years ago, and then I had a, um, a fellowship for two or three years after that, which is also when I started working on Dostoevsky. But at the time, I was I was pretty confident that I wanted to do a book on post-Soviet writing. Um, and so I was reading an enormous amount of different uh, Russian novels published since about 1991, and um, obviously Shadov is the one who, who stayed with me the longest because this, when I when I realized that I had time to st- to start doing a new a new book uh, three or four years ago, Shadov was the writer I I most wanted to do. I mean, I think the reason is. Um, Every sentence of his is distinctive. Uh, when, when I open one of his books and pick up any paragraph, I immediately recognize the voice. And for me, that was always an important test of um, my 
affection for a writer, my interest in a writer, um, because that means that there's some sort of integrity in, in, in the fiction of this particular writer, something uncompromising about it, um, which enables them to preserve a particular style. And in Shadov's case, that's certainly certainly the case. So that, that, that was one thing. Um, I, I find, yeah, his writing plunges you into a, a particular mood of um, melancholy, I would say, of uh, mourning for something. He, he, he was... His characteristic of his generation um, of writers, in the sense that um, his writing projects the feeling that he, he's come after the time of great hopes, of great tragedies, of great everything, really. Um, and he, he, he's sort of trying to put the pieces back together again as a writer. Um, and that process and the way that that um, affects the actual structure of his novels, which I find as interesting as the plots, um, as interesting as the ideas behind them. Is, is another fa- feature that drew me to him. Um, so you initiated it then? It wasn't that you were approached by a publisher. You you went. You... No, no, I initiated it. As mm-hmm. I said, I would read you know a lot of a lot of different. Um, an important point to make is that he he started writing his novels well before the end of the Soviet Union. So Shadov was born in the early nineteen fifties. Um, he himself trained academically as a historian, and he wrote. Uh, what in Russian you would call a kandidatska dissertatia, so pretty much equivalent to a PhD in England, on um, the early 17th century, uh, the so-called time of troubles between the Rurik and Romanov dynasties in Russia. And um, it was only after doing that and after himself doing some postdoctoral work that he started writing poetry, started publishing poetry, actually in official journals, but only a little bit. And that was the end of the 1970s. And by his own account, at some point he says, the, and these poems are very interesting, they're all about the natural world, I mean, to a large extent. They're not um, about the Russian Revolution or anything like his novels are. But he says that at a certain point the, the, the poetry just dried up and um, he, st- he turned to writing this very different genre of um, novels that grow out of Russian history um, in the early 1980s. And so that this one, which I've translated, was, I think, the third novel he wrote. I think he's written eight to the current day. And, um, well, it probably has a good um, claim to be the very last Soviet novel, or at least one of the Soviet period. It wasn't published then, um, in that he, 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 he wrote it. He finished it just before, um, just before the Soviet Union was, was dissolved in 1991, so... It was written between 1988 and 1991, and then only published in Russia in 1993. Does it make it harder to translate that he has this distinctive voice, or is that an asset in the translation? Um, so, uh, yeah, what I was getting at by, by mentioning the importance of the fact that the, he started off before, the, before the, the post-Soviet period is that he was really writing for himself, he always says. You know, he wasn't expecting to be published in the 1980s. And so this distinctive voice probably comes from being, or the intensity of this distinctive voice probably related to the fact that he wasn't writing with any kind of commercial um, priorities in, in mind. Um, and he was writing for himself or for a very small group of acquaintances who, would, who, who read his work once he'd finished it. Um, in terms of how difficult that is to bring across in translation, um, no, I mean, I suppose I chose him because I felt that there was a, a match, uh, because I felt that I could uh, cotton on to that voice. 
his writing is um, unusual in the sense that there's hardly any dialogue. He, he um, often says that 90% of any conversation is water, and there's only 10% of sort of juice or meat left um, after that. So he, he tends to, his writing, his novels tend to be very dense in terms of their expression and in terms of their um, con- consistency. So there's very little dialogue, and dialogue, dialogue is often a stumbling block for, for translators. Um, certainly it was one of the hardest things in crime and punishment. So the absence of dialogue for me probably made the translation process quicker um, with him. But on the other hand, there are other difficulties that his writing poses. There's a very strong rhythm. Um, he uses punctuation in a way that you can do in Russian that you can't do so easily in English. There's a sort of flow. Um, he often separates what we would separate with full stops, just with a comma in Russian. And, and his writing builds this extreme momentum. Uh, and in English, we have a tendency to split up paragraphs, split up sentences. And so I, I was trying to resist that as much as possible, but sometimes you have to. So it sounds like a small thing, but over the course of a novel, it's quite important what you do with uh, punctuation and with syntax. Um, his writing is made up of um, very interesting contrasts. I mean, he has lots of assonance, lots, lots of alliteration, pleonasm, things that would seem redundant, um, but, but that actually go a long way to creating the mood of his writing. And then you have these sudden lurches into a much more concise, um, piercing brevity. Um, and then there's also contrast in the way that his writing can be very, very slow. And then all of a sudden you get this sort of feverish, ecstatic um, passages. Uh, and this is all related to the actual themes of his books, um, which are a sort of, as I understand them, a kind of collective portrait of the Russian people of Russian history told, told through individual lives. There's this contrast between the collective and the individual. And did you interact with him while you were translating? Did he have a say in the translation? Uh, he didn't have, I mean, he didn't want to have a say in, in, in I mean, we've, we, we got on very well. We've talked a lot and um, met in both, both in person and, and, by, and by correspondence. And his, his view was simply, you know, I trust you to do what will work in, in your language. Um, but he was certainly on hand to, um, to help clear up the many um, obscure points in the, in the original text where... Because, because his writing is, I mean, it grows out of historical fact on the one hand. So, for example, this novel has Madame de Stal as uh, one of its central characters. And Madame de Stal in, in, in the novel lives three lives in Russia. Um, well, sorry, the second and third life is in Russia, the first in France, which, of course, is a, entire, sounds like entire fantasy, but it's also the case that Madame de Stal did visit Russia, that she did spend time in Russia in the early 19th century. She even received a Russian passport. And, and that's characteristic of his method that, you know, he, he's obviously writing a type of um, fantasy, but on the other hand, these fantasies are rooted in certain things that actually happened in Russian history. Um, the setting of this novel is, is um, a uh, old people's home, which once used to be the Institute for, Nat- Nat- uh, for Natural Genius, which, according to the novel, um, was a project by the Bolsheviks in the 1920s to try to cultivate and to harness the geniuses of the country to, to produce 
even more genius. And, and that sounds, again, incredible, ridiculous, but according to Sharov, from what he tells me, um, something similar to this was actually happening in the 1920s. There were secret institutes that were trying to develop genius. It does sound very Bolshevik, I must say, <laughs> which, of course, is what it's intended to. Yeah. Um, so that sets us up beautifully to move into talking about the novel itself. And as I mentioned in the introduction, it opens with someone whose name we initially don't know because he's a first-person narrator, but he's later referred to as Alyosha, which is usually a, a nickname for Alexei. And he's on his way to consult with a professor, Kronfeld, excuse me, Kronfeld, uh -huh. not Kornfeld, uh, who is supposed to prescribe a set of pills. So tell us, who is the narrator? Well, you're quite right that we don't learn his name, actually, for quite a long time. Um, and that's connected to his, that works very well, because Alyosha himself is worried about losing his own identity. Um, he's 45, we're told, um, at the point when he, voluntarily checks himself into Professor Kronfeld's care. He says that he, I can't remember, a year ago, a few years ago, he, 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 he fell on ice and had a very bad head injury. And since that point, he's been having these kind of blackouts where, um, after which he can't remember where he's been. Um, according to external witnesses, he started behaving very erratically during these blackouts. Um, and, um, due to his own anxiety and the anxiety of his own family, he's trying to, he's trying to seek medical, medical care. And we also know that he had um, been, also been a man of letters up to this point. This is the mid-1960s in Moscow. He'd been working uh, at newspapers, and he'd also uh, been contracted to work on a biography of Madame de Stahl, who, as I said, will come back in the novel for the famous uh, Soviet series, Fiery Revolutionaries of Biographical Books. But in a way... Uh, it's not everything in Shadow's writing is metaphor. Um, and Alyosha, who he actually is, what, what his past is, is, is important. But what's also important is this whole mood that the beginning of the novel creates, which is of a man who's simply lost. He's trying to find his way to this hospital, and he can't find his way there through these, this disused part of Moscow where the geography is so confusing. And it's a, this beginning with a man who is lost is extremely... Um, powerful, I think. Uh, Shadow doesn't sort of use literary allusions, to, but we don't need him to. We can think of Dante, of the beginning of hell, or we can think more closer to Shadow's own time of, of some very important Russian novels of um, individuals who, which begin with individuals out on a big road or out lost somewhere, like in the, in the novels of Andrei Platonov, or closer to Shadow's, even closer to Shadow's time, the comic novel by Benedict Yerafiev, which some, some, some people will know because it's very available in English translation called Moscow Stations. So the sense, simply the sense of lostness is very important and of somebody who has to reconstitute their identity in some way. Uh, and and, and that's, that really sets up the novel. I wondered also if it was an accident that the, when we do find out the narrator's name, the name is Alyosha, because the most famous Alyosha in Russian literature is in Bro uh, Brothers Karamazov. Exactly. I, I certainly thought of that a lot. And, but, um, you know, as, I, as, as we discussed before, I was doing this while working on Dostoevsky at the same time, so it would have been hard for me not to think of that. But I think that's right. I think that is the first illusion. Uh, but talking to Sharov, he, he, he himself... You know, there's this big question, Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, which the title of a, a book that George Steiner wrote about 50 years ago. And most, most 
either Russianists or Russians would tend to put themselves in one camp or the other. And uh, Vladimir Sharov would always say that he's he's closer to or more interested in Tolstoy uh, and that he finds Dostoevsky um, almost too agonizing a writer, perhaps because, whereas to me as an outsider, it seems that he has an enormous amount in common with Dostoevsky. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, I thought so too, actually, much more than with Tolstoy. But whatever, he's he's the writer, he knows what he's going for, so I won't argue with him about that. Um, but yes, we so we start out meeting this Alyosha, and as you point out, he's lost, and he remains lost for probably the good part of the first chapter. And then even before we find out really what's going to happen to him, um, you mentioned earlier that Sharov um, did his uh, training as a Muscovite historian, and I'm also a Muscovite historian, and so I was very struck with um, what another sort of organizing principle of the book, together with the, the business of Madame de Stael, which I hope we'll get to in a minute, is um, what's called the Synodic Apalnik, which means the Memorial Book of the Disgraced, which Ivan the Terrible drew up um, close to the time of his death after his he killed his son in an accident. Um, and there's a big debate among most historians about the purpose of this list, but it's a list of names that were presented for prayer in monasteries to pray for the, the souls of people whom he had ordered murdered or who had been murdered as part of his, his purge, because without the prayers, these people had died violent deaths and they would be condemned to uh, wander the earth eternally. They couldn't go to heaven um, because they were unclean dead in the, the sort of popular imagination. And, um, Alyosha then begins uh, his own memorial book, which is not as gruesome as Ivan the Terrible's, but is his way, I think, it's, it's more than a, a diary, it's, it's less than a memoir, it's, it's like these, these records of the lives of people he has encountered and will encounter as he goes into the hospital, can you talk a little bit about it as a literary device, not not as a historical device, but uh, for what it means to Alyosha and what it means for the book as a whole? Yes, I mean, it's it's explained within the book in that Alyosha remembers being told about this memorial book as one of his early childhood memories and um, how struck he was as a child that this absolute tyrant um, could, shortly before his death, have had this change of mind or change of heart uh, at least that's how it's presented in the book and um, want to seek some kind of repentance for these these murders that he's committed throughout his career by by um, by asking that prayers be said for, for the people he's murdered and also I think Ivan the Terrible gave money to monasteries for, the, for these prayers to be to be read um, and and to to atone for his sin so Alyosha remembers this from his childhood. He's incredibly struck by it. And he, he, I think there's a sentence saying that to the extent that I can never compare with Ivan the Terrible in his evil, nor can I compare with him in, his, in the strength of his faith in, 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 in doing this, um, in, in making this change towards the end of his life. Uh, I'm not sure we should understand that as Shadov saying that. This is a characteristic paradox for his narrator. Um, but this book, like all Chadov's books, is built up on or is works by the sort of dynamic relationship between different levels of history and different metaphors. And so what is the relation between Ivan the Terrible and Alyosha? One is that in both cases, there's the specter of some kind of mental illness. I mean, it was thought that 
you correct me if I'm wrong, but that Ivan the Terrible killed his son, possibly in a fit of some kind of mental, um, some kind of madness. Um, Ivan the Terrible's son was has gone down in history as um, somebody who was simple-minded, who suffered from mental illness, Fyodor, and uh, Alyosha himself suffers from these kind of, these fits. So that's another link that's being made. But probably the most important thing is that is the contrast, because whereas Ivan the Terrible was was asking for this book to be written in order to atone for his own sins. Alyosha hasn't got any sins, as far as we know, of his own. He hasn't killed anybody. He is um, writing out the stories of other people um, who have, in his own words, died before their, their, their time. And he feels that if he doesn't write them up, nobody else will. Uh, and, and here, another layer of history is certainly coming into play, and that's the history of the repressions during the Soviet Union and the sense that so many people died with no trace left, perhaps if their, if their lives weren't recorded in any paper, on any any piece of paper anywhere. And uh, Shadov, when I when I meet him, often talks about his his own childhood memories, earliest childhood memories, um, in the far, in the in the flat where he still lives. His father was a writer as well, and um, m- among many of his father's friends who came to that flat were were people returning from the Gulag. Um, in the in the after the amnesties in the in the mid 1950s, so I think I think we have to as we carry on reading the novel, we realise that all of these different layers of history are intertwining, and um, and the, this backdrop of Ivan the Terrible's reign, which doesn't come back very explicitly very often, it, 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 it nevertheless stays with us in our memory. But 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 to return to the main point, I was saying is this interesting contrast between. Ivan the Terrible turning for his own sins, and Alyosha sort of turning outwards towards other people. Um, he, he, you know, he's, we start the novel with him feeling lost, and I think that there's, although you, you couldn't call Shadov a Christian, specifically Christian writer, any more than you could call him a Jewish writer, um, he is undoubtedly a religiously, undoubtedly deeply spiritual writer and interested in religion. And I think, I think that with Alyosha, you've got somebody who is losing his life in order to sort of find it in the, in the, in the, um, in the famous gospel verses. So, and I think he's finding it by, he's rediscovering his identity by writing up other people's stories. Yeah, this, this sets up a couple of really interesting questions. The first is, which you hint at when you're talking about religion, is that right here when he's talking about the memorial book, Alyosha notes that since childhood he has loved both Lenin and Christ, which he notes is is an unusual combination. Um, and most people, in fact, tell him that it's impossible for him to love both Lenin and Christ, but that he, um, he does. And he also notes that, especially as a boy, he felt uncomfortable praying because he, in effect, didn't have enough sins. So there's another odd link there with, with um, Ivan the Terrible because you know, Ivan obviously had enough sins to go around for several mm. people. Mm. Um, do you see this as as opening up his character in some way? This conflict. The, um, well, except that he himself, the way he describes it, doesn't see it as a conflict. He's saying that everybody else sees it as a conflict. I think. I think what Shadow is exploring. Um, is a word that we keep coming back to, which is childhood and the important. The, there's a sense in which the narrator keeps going back to his childhood memories and in his childhood memories he was told presumably these very 
soothing and beautiful fairy tale type stories about the old Bolsheviks, about Lenin, about the revolution. And those clearly had some sort of a level of emotion and um, uh, left an indelible impression on him. And so in the same way that believers have, or people who were brought up as in a particular faith will have, will associate their own identity with early um, uh, visits to church or to of religious holidays. Um, so it's, 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 it's the magical world of childhood which informs Shadov's characters. Um, his father was uh, a science fiction writer partly, but he was also, he remains very widely read as a children's writer. And childhood is such a big concern of interest in Shadow's novels. Um, that it's a kind of double-edged sword, that on the one hand, childhood is where everything magical resides and where, where we, um, where, um, which enchants our lives, but on the other hand, the kind of urge back to childhood, urge back towards comforting stories, beautiful stories, is a very dangerous one. Um, and, and so I think when, when Shadow's writing about him saying he could love Lenin and Christ, it's a sort of comment on the way in which Soviet people were, were brought up and the way in which they, um, their own family and state education created beautiful myths out of the Soviet past that were very, that were very um, enduring. Yes, and actually Alyosha mentions that also uh, early in the book, that he has these fuzzy memories of Bolsheviks because he associates them with his mother and with his childhood. Mm -hmm. There's also an irony, as I was listening to you talk, I remember uh, when I was in the Soviet Union, which was still, there was the end of the Brezhnev years, so it was still very communist. And of course, technically it was it was atheist and, um, you know, you couldn't have Lenin and Christ at the same time. And yet, if you went into a church, there were all these old ladies who regularly went to church and took their grandchildren with them to church. Yeah, and certainly not just old ladies. I mean, within the intelligentsia at the time that Sharov was growing up, there was a huge interest in um, religion. And there were a lot of um, uh, priests out, outside the official church um, and a lot of um, leaders among the intelligentsia of, 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 of very strong Christian uh, um, inclination. So, so there was a huge resurgence of interest in, in, in religion in the 70s. Right. And these were all people who had been raised as Bolsheviks, at least within the school system. I remember someone saying, I don't remember who it was, but, you know, here, here we are 70 years after the revolution and we still have all these Christians. Where did they come from? <laughs> yeah. And um, and also, more broadly, in, in, in this book and in other books, Shadow is revisiting the the idea that um, the Bolshevik Revolution itself was um, was a, can be seen in, in religious terms um, that that it was that it was some sort of extension of Russian religious strivings before then, right, um, and and that. One of one of the recurring themes in his novels is uh, Russian self-perception as a sort of chosen people, and he thinks that the Bolshevik regime is another expression, or at least in his books, the Bolshevik the revolution comes across as another expression of that sense of being chosen. That, as you know, again from the medieval period, the idea that Moscow could be a third Rome, um, you know, that 
that um, connection between Russia and chosen land, chosen people, um, was undoubtedly felt strongly by early Soviet leaders. Um, that's something which scholars have been writing about recently. So, so the the you know the interweaving of socialism and religion is is not so unusual. Um, many people have written about it before. Right. So the other thing that comes up in um, in that early passage is before we even know the results of Alyosha's uh, consultation with Kronfeld, the book goes off in a series of these memorial um, book entries, which uh, on the surface they appear to be tangents, but they're really not tangents because they they set out certain themes that are then developed in the, the long central section, which is the thing I want to talk about next. But first off, I, I was wondering if you could go through a little bit some of these early entries. There's a, a Nikolai Pastuchov, uh, who is a former Moscow public prosecutor. There's Vera Rozhdesvienskaya, who is his granddad by marriage, um, a neighbor. And then he goes into this long digression about the writer um, Leo Tolstoy, Lev Tolstoy. And um, the first sort of fantastical story in which um, he postulates that Leo's son was actually his brother and so on and so forth. Could you tell us about that? And the the connection of these stories to the overall novel. Yeah, it, it, it would be hard to sort of retell these, as you, as you call them, digressions, because they're so um, there's so much plot within each of them. Um, but but you're right to say that they're digressions or they're tangents. But that itself is typical of how Shadow works, and it's not quite clear what they're doing there um, it, 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 until you've read them all, and until you've read the whole book, when you begin to see that there are lots of connections between these different stories. Um, all of these stories t- are about, for example, uh, how humans, how we prolong ourselves is a, is a word that Chadov uses again and again, just like Madame de Stahl will prolong herself twice, have three lives. It's, these stories are about um, how we extend each other's memories beyond our deaths in various ways. Um, but they're also, they also contrast with each other, these stories. So, for example, Viera Rajdiesvinskaya is in her old age, and she's, um, at the request of her relatives, writing down her memoirs. And there's this strange um, comment, or well, not strange, but in any, in any sense we hear that as soon as she writes down something from her life, she then forgets it, or at least it ceases to become important to her. And that's, uh, I suppose, a very old idea. Plato thought that with writing technology, people would start forgetting things more. But then in another of these stories, we've got his neighbor, the narrator's neighbor, Kochin, who who thinks that writing is precisely what saves us from disintegration. And he he has come back from the camps. He's barricaded himself. In, well, not barricaded. He, just, he only lives in his room. He never, never leaves his room, which I think is in part of the same communal apartment as the narrator. And he's got these strange texts on little scraps of paper, which he which he tapes, tapes over, which he tapes over his windows, um, so that he actually blocks out the sun. And uh, every day, the narrator comes to him, and Cochin, his neighbour, gives him these complicated instructions about what order these scraps of poetry or prose should be read in. Um, so these pieces are like a mosaic that can be arranged and rearranged, um, and it's a wonderful micro. Um, example of what this whole novel is doing, I think, um, in that it's 
the pieces are are not related in a logical way. It's not that there's one linear plot that if we're clever enough, we can see, we can follow it. These are really disparate pieces, which seen, which we need to sort of play off against each other and see what connections are forged. Um, and uh, I was actually, it reminds me of a particular, can I just read you a, a, a particular a paragraph? Oh, yes, please do. In which Cochin um, talks about this, about what he's doing with these scraps of paper. So I'm quoting, Cochin explained more than once why it was that he stuck his words to the window. No two explanations were ever the same, nor did one ever contradict another. It all began, it seems, during the war, when, to protect them from bombings, window panes were plastered over, over with paper ribbons and crisscross patterns. Cochin let his sister cut out several pages from his novel and started claiming that his writings were saving the world from destruction and disintegration. He also liked to say that his novel kept his sister and him warm and stopped them from freezing, that a novel should be tempered by the sun, that it should be transparent, and that until electricity was no longer required, his work would not be done. I'll stop there, but the, it's an interesting passage because Shadow's writing is very, very complex, but what he's actually trying to do, it seems to me, is get that quality of transparency that's mentioned in this, in this, in this, um, in this passage. And also the idea that writing keeps us warm. Warmth is a real value for Shadow. Um, it's something that um, his characters in different um, settings keep keep coming back to as, as, as such an important value that the way in which in times of historical tragedy and repressions and everything else, human warmth, people being together, is, is, is um, a huge value. And I think that the value of friendship within Russian culture is very important to Shadow. Fascinating. Um, I think at this point we probably should shift into the main story. Uh, we don't have to go through all of it, but we should probably at least talk about Madame de Stael and where she fits into this. And perhaps we can talk about the Leo Tolstoy business as part of that, because that's the, the clearest link between um, the, the the individual story and then this much longer story that constitutes the bulk of the novel is between Tolstoy and Madame de Stael. Whereas I think you're right that the other part is about memories and the importance of memories, which is a, a big theme in the book as a whole. So um, briefly, just to set it up, and, and I love the passage. I'm so glad you read it. Uh, when Alia Stefani does meet Kronfeld, he doesn't just get a prescription as he's expecting on page one. And instead, he is admitted as a patient to Kronfeld Psychiatric Hospital, which is at the old site of the Institute of Natural Genius, and he's being, uh, he's there to test a new drug regimen. So the whole time that he's in the hospital, he's being given these very powerful drugs, which affect his memory, among other things. But he also, he starts recording the life stories of the other patients. And he met, meets this guy named Ifraimov, mm -hmm. who uh, launches into this long story involving Madame de Stael. So That's right, yeah. Talk, talk to us about the essence of that story and what it tells us about the the Russian Revolution and the Russian people as understood by Sharov. Hmm. Well, I will do. The, the first thing to say is probably that, as, as you say, Ifraimov starts telling the narrator the story, which then goes on for, I don't know, 150 pages. The narrator himself doesn't understand why he's being told that story. So there's a sense in which, the, like the reader, the narrator is also confused about what, what this story is all about. Um, 
well, as I, as I mentioned before, the, in, in the novel, Madame de Stael has three lives, and that allows Shadow, she, she learns basically a secret, or she is given a secret of immortality, which allows her to extend herself twice. And that allows Shadow to, to create this, to, to, to have a character, Madame de Stael, who lives between the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. Uh, so that old parallel between the two revolutions is clearly, is clearly in play. Um, but I think Madame de Stal is also being used, uh, being brought into the novel to make all sorts of connections between Russian and French culture in general. Um, but it's fascinating that she becomes the main, one of the main characters, one of the two main characters, because usually she, she, Madame de Stal appears in books like by Tolstoy, for example, as a sort of marginal figure or a figure always on the, on the, on, on the side. Um, so, so in the novel, um, the most important relationship that involves Madame Stahl, she has many, many lovers in Russia. Uh, in, and so in various ways, she's described as a kind of midwife of the Russian Revolution when it happens, because she's had intimate relationships with so many of the thinkers and politicians and terrorists even, who in one way or another contribute to the 1917 revolution. So that's one. I mean, it's an extremely bold move, which which people will... Uh, like or dislike in different ways to have Madame de Stel, um to characterize her in this way. The most important relationship is with a philosopher called Nikolai Fyodorov and this is perhaps in a way the most alien part of the book probably for a, um, a non-Russian reader because Fyodorov is not that famous um, but in Sharov's own understanding Fyodorov is a sort of absolutely central um, precursor to the Russian Revolution to the whole of the 20th century. Fyodorov was a, a, a recluse who worked in a library in Moscow in the late 19th century who knew, nevertheless, most of the leading intellectuals of, of the time, including Tolstoy, including Dostoevsky, including Solovyov, the philosopher. And, and uh, he made a big impression on all of them. And he had... Um, um, he developed a, a very uh, extreme and eccentric, as it appears, idea that, um, m- that, that, that man should try to... Our task in life is, is to resurrect our ancestors. And he came to believe that this could literally be done, that uh, the atoms of the, 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 of, the, of the dead could be reconstituted at some point in space. And um, it's also well known that Fyodorov had a lot of influence on... Uh, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, the ro- rocket scientist, who then had a huge influence on the Soviet space program. So Fyodorov, for, 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 for um, Sharov, is a, a, a kind of key person in Russian history and Russian intellectual history. Um, and also important because Fyodorov expresses some sort of disappointment in God, that God has not saved us, and that man has to save himself. And this kind of whole, exp- a whole idea of resurrecting the dead is, is, is a response to that um, imperative and it also comes from a very strong sense that Fyodorov had that what needed to be overcome at all costs was inequality between classes or inequality between people um, between the learned and the ignorant and, and you know these are ideas that he's cultivating in the 18, late 19th century but it's not hard for us to see how close they are to many of the ideas that came to the fore in the Russian revolution so it's not so we can see why Shadov is connecting these things um, and also when we think of Lenin being embalmed in the mausoleum and, you know, this attempt by 
the Soviets to sort of preserve their leaders in a state of, of apparent life is also connected, can also be related to the Fyodorov project of trying to resurrect our ancestors. So Fyodorov, who I've talk, spoken so much about, because I think he is probably the main character, but he has a long relationship with Distal at various points in his life in this novel. And part of that relationship is argument uh, between them, that he's trying to convince her of his ideas, and she finds these ideas utterly uh, foreign to her um, and inhuman in a way. Um, and Fyodorov, as you, as you suggested, is close to Tolstoy in, in the novel in this sense, and, and whereas the style is, as it were, the parallel to Tolstoy's wife, who, who Tolstoy left in old age, um, where the main argument between them is, in both cases, is the man trying to sort of preserve his purity, trying to for whom sex uh, is a, a sin, procreation should be forbidden, Fyodorov comes to think. And so you have Madame de Stahl is bringing a kind of feminine principle into the novel, which, which, is, which is a very powerful one, and which makes Fyodorov's ideas often look quite ridiculous. And that all of this is a commentary undoubtedly on Tolstoy's own, own um, dogmatic beliefs in later life. Yes. And actually, I mean, we could go on talking about this for a long time, but I know you're pressed for time. So we'll, we're going to have to leave people to go find out about it on their own. But uh, because she's involved with pretty much everybody involved in the Russian Revolution and the early Bolshevik period, you could say that it's also a commentary on the, the revolution. She's kind of the, the feminine principle. Yes. And of course, you know, uh, people won't know this unless they speak Russian, but revolutsia is a female, a feminine noun in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's opposed in the in the in the in the novel to a masculine noun terror, terror. Uh-huh. And um, that's an important. Um, uh, but yes, I, I think as you said, one will have to will have to leave readers readers to to to, to find that. But um, the style another important feature is, is that Shadow plays on is. The Stal and Stalin; these two characters become become connected too in the novel. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, we have to, you know, this is a joke as well. And Sharov has said that what he writes, he's called it "lubovnaya satira," um, affectionate satire. That's one description I, I saw him use at some point. I mean, no description is right for his work. I don't think he's really writing satire. But I think what one has to understand that this is that there is a huge that there is a very important comic principle at work in everything that I've been talking about that we've been talking about. Um, but as often with Russian literature, it's hard to know where comedy suddenly slips into something much more much more disturbing, and vice versa. Um, but I, I, I suppose I'd like to draw attention to to something which which connects both the style of the book and what the book is about, and that's that I think beyond all of these um, specificities of which character is doing this or that in the book, the whole book is, its achievement for me is that it's creating a kind of portrait of an entire mood that leads to revolution. Um, whether it's revolution in 1917 or whether it's another revolution in the, in the future, um, Shadow's talent is, 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 um, is to give this sense of a momentum building that something has to sort of give at a certain point. And so for him, it's, revolution is not just about politics, it's not just about ideas or about terrorism, it's also what's happening in art, it's about what's happening in literature, it's about what's happening in music, and one of the most 
beautiful, most interesting characters in the book is the composer Alexander Skriabin, uh, whose, whose most remarkable works were written shortly before the Russian Revolution and the Silver Age. And the descriptions that are given of his, especially his la- la- late uh, unfinished symph- symphony, or really unwritten, we don't have a record of it, called the Mysterium, Sharov gives this wonderful description of this un- unwritten work. It's a typical thing for Sharov because we know that, the, that Skriabin wanted to produce this work that was going to be a huge collective work involving more instruments than ever, involving not just sounds but also smells. But it's a kind of historical lacuna. We don't have any proof of, of what it really involved. And, and that's just the perfect um, pretext for Sharov to... That's exactly the kind of subject he likes. And he dedicates to this mysterium this this wonderful twenty page digression, which is a kind of synesthetic piece of writing, which brings in, as I say, smells, sounds, temp- warmth, um, music, anything you can mention, and it's this way he has of creating a collective atmosphere in of a country that I find um, uh, remarkable and, in the end, very moving about his writing. Uh, and of the disappointment that followed. So I think I normally I I end up by asking what you think people would like to take away from the book, but I think you just answered that, that that culture is just as important as politics. Mm, Undoubtedly. Mm -hmm. So uh, what about yourself? Are you working on any new translation projects? I'm not, I, I, well, I, I think my next translation will be Shadow's second book, the one he wrote before this one, um, which he wrote in the mid-1980s, and it's called Repetitsi in Russian, so it will come out in English as The Rehearsals, and that's set back in the 17th century. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a, a novel that has a kind of historical starting point, but then develops in a typically Sharovian fashion. It's often thought of as his masterpiece. Um, it's set in the New Jerusalem, as uh, which is a, a kind of settlement uh, outside, uh, monastic settlement outside Moscow, which uh, Nikon, um, uh, I'm not sure if he created it or in any case he named all of the pla- all of the paths and buildings in this place called New Jerusalem, not far outside Moscow, after the names given to the Holy Land, and so it's back to the theme of Russia as a um, as a new holy land, and uh, Shadov takes this idea in very, very interesting directions in that novel. I think New Jerusalem is also a name for Moscow, just like Third Rome as well. You're right; it's a monastic community outside Moscow, but it it also is also like a, a right. metaphor for Moscow itself. Um, so that's wonderful. I'll, I'll look forward to it. Seventeenth century is almost discussed. Right? Although, although it's seventeenth century, taking us up to the mid twentieth century. So. Ah, okay. But it, but it will present particular problems because there's a lot of seventeenth um, uh, century terminology used, which which is going to be new territory for me. Um, yeah, but. yeah, it can be quite difficult. But so, well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Very welcome. Thank you for having me along. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Oliver Reedy, the translator of Vladimir Sharov's Before and During. You can find out more about Oliver at www.sant.ox.ac.uk slash people slash r-e-a-d-y dot html. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter 
at capital N E W capital B O O K S capital H I S T capital F I C. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cplesley.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and, in general, discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.